Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on March 7, 2019, Let's Learn a Tad About Substance, an EU and OECD update. The panelists for the webcast were Doug McConey, a partner in PwC's International Tax Services Group and National Practice Leader, Yoni Guther and Martin Muscant, both principals in the International Tax Services Group, and David Ernick, a principal in PwC's Transfer Pricing Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the EU Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive, including an overview of the directive, the interest deduction limitations, and the general anti-avoidance rule. Have a listen. As I mentioned, we're gonna be covering the EU Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive, the country-specific implementation that we've already seen a number of countries jump on board early, in fact, and what some of the timing is. We will talk about some of the OECD substance requirements, what a number of jurisdictions have already enacted, and then try to sum up all of this in a relatively concise package. So let's dive right into our first topic, which is the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive. And I'm going to turn things over to Martin to really give us an overview of the basics and what's taking place in the EU's Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive. Martin? Yes, thank you, Doug. Um, Yes, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I want to start this discussion on the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive on why is this such an important directive. Um, This directive actually fundamentally changes uh, the corporate income tax systems in many European countries. the rules included will typically affect how US multinationals have organized themselves over the last 10, 15 years. So the impact is, is quite big. And the rules typically aim or will have as a consequence that, you're, uh, that they're driving up your, your effective tax rate. And with the new US tax system, uh, Doc, you know, with uh, guilty limited use of foreign tax credits, um, your foreign tax can really become a cost. So paying attention on what's happening in Europe and um, how to respond to these uh, changes uh, has become uh, really important. Um, why do we have ATAT? Um, after the uh, uh, OCD BEPS action items became final in October 2015, the European Union um, dived right on, uh, on top of it and said, um, this is an important topic and we really need a European-wide common set of rules, um, first of all, to um, discourage aggressive tax planning, but also to have a fair taxation within Europe. So really to ensure the internal market within Europe. Um, So the European Union came up with a proposal for a common and coherent uh, system of rules um, implementing some of the BEPS action items. Um, So we were in October 2015. In the summer of 2016, already those 28 member states um, agreed upon this directive. So we had the first directive already being adopted in uh, summer of 2016, and the first amendment came, ATA 2, came in February 2017. So um, uh, for two years now we have this directive. What happens with the directive is the next important question, because it's European law, um, and I will not go into detail on all the formal angles of European law, but the directive typically requires member states to implement the rules set in those directives into domestic legislation. Um, 
And what happens with a directive like ATAD, it sets a minimum requirement. So it sets rules which are mandatory, but it gives the um, member states the option to implement uh, the rules more strictly uh, to their options in the rules, and which Yoni will discuss a bit later on, and also the timing. It's only an ultimate date, and as Doc alluded to already, some countries really jumped the gun and started implementing rules earlier. So um, it's really a complicated way of legisl uh, legislation, whereby you have the European set of rules, and on top of that you will get the domestic uh, implementation. That also brings in some complications in understanding those rules, because you have to look at the domestic law, but also you have to do more or less and check whether the rules in that country is in line with European law. So we are facing, and ch uh, of the challenge we are facing is really a fundamental change in many states in a very complicated way. No. Um, that is a, perhaps a, a bit not too optimistic start of the discussion, but um, that is what the, the European landscape is right now. Um, what are the rules that are proposed and, and are being implemented? We have five rules. First of all, there's interest limitation, a 30% EBITDA rule comparable with our 163J limit. Um, timing of that rule is 1119. So the rule had already been imp or is already effective, and some countries can opt to implement later if you have equally effective rules. Um, but 1119 is the due date, was the due date for the interest limitation rule. Um, exit taxation, what's the next rule? Exit tax means if you transfer assets or business from one country to another, do you pay tax on the capital gain built in um, in that asset? Um, rule will become effective 1120. So here we have just over, over nine months left. Then we have a general anti-avoidance rule, AGAR, um, effective 1119. And for me, that rule is more or less a stick that the European Commission can use that if a country will not implement in a, in a correct or in a timely manner. Then we have the uh, CFC rules, the subpart F rules. They already became effective 1119. And finally, we have hybrid mismatches, which will kick in 1120, um, the latest. Now, having said this as a big overview, I want to tune to you, Yoni, to discuss it in a bit more detail. Yeah, thank you, Martin. And first of all, I want to say it's going to be impossible to talk about all of these rules in, in the limited time that we have. We probably need a webcast on each of these <laughs> separate <laughs> rules. But um, I'll do my best to keep it high level. So basically starting out with the interest limitation rule in, in ATAD. And the interest limitation rule basically restricts the, um, the, the deduction of exceeding borrowing costs to 30% of a taxpayer's EBITDA earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization. And like Martin was saying, that's similar to the 163J rules in the US, although in the US the rule will become more harsh in a few years when EBIT starts to replace EBITDA. Um, but it is, it, in, in, in effect, it's, it's pretty similar. So what are exceeding borrowing costs for these purposes? So exceeding borrowing cost is really the, um, the amount by which the deductible borrowing costs exceed the taxable interest revenue or other equivalent economic revenues that a taxpayer may have. Um, and that in itself already implies that in situations where you have a back, pure back-to-back -back financing structures, where generally the revenue should definitely um, exceed the cost, this specific limitation would not apply. Um, Borrowing costs are a broad term, so it basically includes any cost related to, an, uh, to, related to financing and the raising of finance. 
Um, so, for example, um, if you have in, in leasing contracts the interest component of a leasing contract or the amount of board, board funds um, uh, compared to what you, ex what you receive at the end of the term, so the premium, all of that potentially could be considered uh, interest cost. And to Martin's point, different countries may have different interpretation of what an interest expense could be. There are a few specific uh, rule uh, exceptions to the rule. So first of all, there's a de minimis rule. So if you have a group, um, a taxpayer in a group, whereby the total exceeding borrowing costs do not exceed 3 million euros, then um, you, you are not limited. Uh, there is also no cap for standalone entities. And standalone entities are really entities that are not part of a consolidated financial group. Um, and do not own interest in associated enterprises, um, companies where they own more than 25% uh, capital or profit or voting rights. Uh, in that case, there's also no cap. Um, there's a grandfathering rule for any uh, loans that are executed before June 17, 2016. If you're relying on the grandfathering rule, it's very important to make sure you don't change any of the terms of the loan agreement, because depending on uh, the type of changes in the terms, uh, you may lose the, uh, the grandfathering exception. And then there are some specific exceptions for financing, uh, public infrastructure financing, and for the financial services industry. Taxpayers can choose to not apply the 30% the, the ratio, but apply a group ratio. There are specific uh, two options for, for application of group ratios. One is if, if the total equity over the assets of the taxpayer is uh, more than eight, at least 98% of the, uh, the group's ratio, then they can apply the group ratio. And the cap can also be increased uh, by using a different ratio where you... Um, like where you determine the third-party interest cost over the group EBITDA multiplied by uh, the taxpayer's EBITDA. So basically, there could be situations where a taxpayer can have uh, the opportunity to have more interest deduction if they can apply the group ratio versus the, uh, the standard 30% ratio. And there are also specific um, options for, ca for carry-forward. So there's a ca an indefinite carry-forward of excess interest expense, and there are some uh, different ways that... Um, uh, the member states can implement those uh, carry-forward and carry-back rules. Yeah, it'll be interesting, Yoni, to see how other jurisdictions look to adopt the definition of net interest expense, for example, particularly as you alluded to after our 163J, which obviously took a very expansive view on the definition of interest. I'm also interested to see how various foreign jurisdictions will say whether some of the existing rules that they have may already be in compliance or if they may adjust those rules, but, but time will tell as we see adoption. So let's enter David into the discussion. We're going to cover some more of ATAD 1, ATAD 2, some of these points. Mm -hmm. A lot of really kind of tough news for taxpayers. Is, is there anything positive out there that, that you're seeing in the EU, particularly from a transfer pricing perspective, that may be some good news for, for some of our, uh, our colleagues? Sure, Doug, there is. We, we do have some good news here in, in everything going on with ATAD. So when I look through the provisions, things like the interest deduction limitations that Yoni was talking about, and the GAR, and especially things like the hybrid mismatch arrangements, I start thinking double taxation, and I start thinking more disputes, and especially coming on the heels of BEPS, I think, well, what's going to happen? What's going to be the impact? But fortunately, someone within the EU was also thinking about this and thinking ahead. And around the same time, in late 2017, they did pass a directive to imp improve dispute resolution mechanisms in the EU. And it is actually coming into effect for complaints filed after July 1st of this year, I believe, for disputes relating to tax years starting on or after January 1, 2018. 
if you have a dispute between two EU member states, you can go to the MAP, Mutual Agreement Procedure. They've got two years to solve it. If not, you have the right to go to mandatory binding arbitration, which is something I, I think it's interesting, Doug, just the fact that we had that optional provision in the MLI, Multilateral Treaty Instrument. Not a lot of uptake, but within the EU, we've got that option now, which I think is great. Thanks, David. So maybe, Yoni, we'll turn it back to you. We talked about interest deductibility, CFC rules. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so CFC rules in general, um, what they're doing is reattributing the income of a low-tax controlled foreign subsidiary to the parent company, whereby the, the income then will be uh, included in the taxable base of the parent company. And so CFC rules may target like the entire um, income of a low-tax uh, subsidiary or be aimed at specific types of income of that subsidiary. And it's important to know that in, uh, in the EU, almost half of the member states already had CFC rules in place before the 881 uh, became in effect. And, and as a result of that, it was very difficult for the uh, member states to, to come to an agreement on how to include the CFC income in the income of the parent company. So basically, they came to a solution where there's two models, model A and model B. And, and what we've seen, and then there's some, some creative interpretation by some countries, and you'll talk about the Netherlands, who is applying a hybrid model. Um, but basically, the, 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 the traditional holding and finance locations, so, such as Ireland and, and Luxembourg, are adopting Model B. Um, and then the um, uh, more manufacturing countries, like Spain and Germany and France, are adopting Model A. So Model A is more in line with the US CFC rules and targets passive income. Um, and Model B adopts a transfer pricing approach uh, and basically use, uses arm's length principles to determine how much income should be allocated to the parent company. Um, under the directive, a CFC exists if a parent company owns more than 50% of the voting capital or profits rights, which is different than, for example, the US CFC rules where you can have a CFC if you have multiple more than 10% US shareholders. Um, and it only applies if the actual tax paid by the uh, subsidiary is, is less than 50% of the parent tax rate. So then the differences between Model A and Model B. So in Model B, the income uh, that is included by the parent company is only considered to be, CFC, is only considered to be uh, CFC income if that subsidiary doesn't have substantive economic activity. So then you really have to determine what are the activities of the subsidiary in that jurisdiction, uh, what kind of uh, people functions, assets, premises, uh, etc. And, and that's a, a, like a facts and circumstances uh, analysis. And there are a few ex exclusions uh, that member states can, can implement. So if a third of the income, uh, less than a third of the income falls within specified categories, you can have an exclusion. And there's also a specific exclusion um, for uh, financial undertakings as well. And then in Model B, there the income is only picked up by the parent company if, if the income is related to non-genuine arrangements. So then you get to the question, what is a non-genuine arrangement? And, and that non-genuine arrangement needs to be put in place for the essential purpose of obtaining a tax advantage. So again, really a facts and circumstances driven analysis. Um, and really relates back to kind of what is the valid commercial reason, what are the people functions, asset functions, risk, risk and reward at the local level. And there are some uh, exclusions in Model B as well. Um, so as the, if the accounting profits in total are less than 750,000 euros um, and the non-trading income less than 75, um, or if the total accounting profits are less than 10% of the operating income, um, you can, you, you can, uh, member states can implement an exclusion. 
And, and to Martin's point, it's going to be difficult to monitor all like how every member state going, is going to implement this like in, in detail. Yeah, and as you, as you mentioned, Yoni, we've already seen the Netherlands, for example. The, these are just guidelines, obviously, that the, the EU has put forth. So yep. every member state will adopt its own version. And we've already seen the Netherlands already taking sort of a, a hybrid ap approach, if you will. Yep. So maybe continuing on with, with Garden. Um, so the ATED also includes a general anti-avoidance rule, um, and that's really in line with the global trend that we see of, of adopting uh, GAR rules. Um, a lot of countries already had uh, a GAR rule in place under their domestic law or based on case law. Um, directives, like most recently, recently the Parent Subsidiary Directive adopted um, a GAR rule as well. And it's also in line with the uh, principal purpose test that um, uh, was adopted under the OECD multilateral instrument. Um, so GAR rules generally try to um, target those areas if there's no specific anti-abuse rules. Um, and so in, in light of the, this specific GAR rule, a member state should ignore the arrangement if the main purpose of one of the main purposes of the, uh, of the arrangement is to obtain a tax advantage. Uh, and again, the arrangement is not genuine. And I think this is where it becomes very gray because if, for example, if you look at the... Um, principal purpose test, um, the language is similar plus different, but different. Um, and it says, well, if one of the principal purposes of obtaining a tax, uh, of, of using a certain structure is obtaining a tax benefit, then you may be disallowed treaty benefits unless there's sufficient uh, substance and, and, and purpose again. And so you have domestic GAR rules, you have case law, you have GAR rules in, in, in the directives, you have the PPT. So it's going to be very interesting to see how courts, local courts and EU courts are going to uh, interpret uh, what is considered to be genuine and what is considered to be a commercial, a real commercial activity. And I know there were some recent cases yeah. in, in Denmark, Martin. Yeah, the, or uh, it was even uh, five cases came out of the um, uh, Supreme Court of the, of the European Union. Uh, which was about anti-abuse in the interest and royalty directive and the parent subsidiary directive, and um, I will not go into detail. But one of the one of the the, the uh, main points of one of the uh, of the outcome is that um, if there is uh, even without a local anti-abuse rule, uh, local authorities seem to be entitled to uh, more or less claim an, an, an European principle of anti-abuse. And now with the GAR, it's only feeding the authorities with more sticks to go after certain transactions. And with regard, it's a very subjective test. So I expect, you know, this, uh, the five cases will be followed by a lot more on what uh, to trying to define what, what anti-abuse and what a good purpose is. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you.